Good afternoon. If you uh, don't know who I am, my name is. I'm going to take my mask off first. My name is Lewis, and uh, I am on the kind of wider group of people that help uh, to lead the church here at Glasgow Grace. Uh, and yeah, just to repeat what uh, Cheese and Ian said, if this is your first time or if you're relatively new and especially warm, uh, welcome to you. Um, if you've ever climbed a Monroe, you know the absolutely brutal feeling of a false summit. You're like pulling yourself up over the last rock. You're thinking about the sandwich you're about to eat at the top. And then another mountain just looms up before you. We, uh, we were out walking once, and I remember this guy passing us the other way, and I said to him, oh, mate, surely, like, how much longer to go? And he didn't even speak, he just laughed and walked past us and kept walking. False summits are brutal, and uh, life as well is full of these kind of false summits we uh, approach all the time, these kind of moments that we think will be peaks in our life. Maybe we graduate from uni or we get married. Maybe we finally get fit, get the promotion we've been wanting. And we think, this is it, I'm going to top out the mountain. I'm going to get this vista, this view. Instead, we just have another mountain looming before us. Something always comes after the something. We never seem to reach the top. And actually, on our journey up the mountain of 1st and 2nd Samuel over almost the last year, we've come across so many false summits. Saul in 1st Samuel feels like the right king, and he keeps failing. God removes the kingship from him. David is prophesied to be God's king, and then he has to wait 22 years for it to come. False summit. Even David's uh, eventual crowning that Johnny walked us through two weeks ago It can't last forever. We might find ourselves as we go through this book actually wondering, what is all of this about? Has all of this just been a historical drama to get one man on the throne and that's that? Can David's reign be the point of all of this? Well, false summit after false summit after false summit, today we reach the peak of the mountain of first and second Samuel. In the words of the theologian Walter Brueggemann, second Samuel 7 is one of the most crucial moments uh, in the entire Old Testament. This afternoon, why don't we climb together up to the peak of this story and uh, catch a glimpse of the view of God's real plan in all of this, God's real plan through this story. In our passage today, into the mess and the drama of the story of First and Second Samuel, God speaks. In fact, our passage today is the longest that God has spoken since Mount Sinai when he met with Moses. That's 500 years of relative silence. God has spoken, but he hasn't spoken like this. And we want to sit up and take notice when God speaks. Where we're going today is the ground of so much of our hope as Christians. The, the earliest Christians looked to the passage that Leah is about to read for us and said, this is about Jesus. So much of our hope as Christians is rooted right here. So I'm going to invite Leah up to read 2 Samuel 7, and we are going to camp out particularly in verses 8 to 17. Yes, so this is 2 Samuel Chapter 7, God's promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. 
Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. David's prayer. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, it is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord? There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God would want to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their gods. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servants and this house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Um, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, 
thank you that you are so loving. Um, Lord, that you meet us exactly where we're at. And we come humbly before you, um, just so ready and willing to learn more about your heart and your character and your will for your people. Father, I pray that you will just fill Lewis with your spirit now. And just give him the words to say. And yeah, just open our hearts and our ears to you now. Teach us what you want to teach us, the word for you, our sovereign. We pray this in all your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Leah. All right, a while ago, uh, I was uh, watching this documentary on Disney Plus, and uh, it showed some of the like earliest animation that the Disney uh, animators used. And they used this fascinating thing called a multi-plane camera. And uh, basically, it's this huge metal rack, and they drew like five, say five, six different drawings of different depths in the scenes. So the trees are at the top, and whatever's in the foreground is at the bottom. And then they would film through this to create this kind of illusion of depth. When you watch it on TV, it just looks like really good animation. In reality, it was this like depth. What looked like one thing flattened into 2D was actually near and far. We find something similar when we read God's prophetic promises in the Old Testament. What looks flat and 2D actually has a near and it has a far. And so to get this out the way, the reason that our passage says that God will punish the coming king is because the near fulfillment of this promise is Solomon. If you don't know who Solomon is, Solomon was David's son. And uh, he, if you know his story, had a glorious reign but was a sinner. And God did punish him. It's also why, uh, in part, God mentions a king that will build a house for him. Solomon's rule was the rule that uh, oversaw the building of a physical temple in Jerusalem. So in one sense, David's literal son Solomon is the kind of near fulfillment. And yet, as we kind of train our camera in, we see that there's more depth than just that. Something further away. When we point our camera into the fullness of this promise, we see Jesus. The Christian church, as I've said, has always read this as being really at its heart about Jesus. And here's what I want us to see, that Jesus is both David's son and God's son. That Jesus is the true temple builder. And that Jesus is an eternal king. First, Jesus will be both David's son and God's son. At the center of that promise that Leah just read was that David's line specifically would be at the heart of what God is doing to redeem humanity. In fact, what we have is like a narrowing down the possibilities of how God is going to do this. So as a, as a quick summary, we start the Bible in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are given this kind of mandate to steward and love and fill the earth with God's goodness. We know they fail, and Eve is then given this promise that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent, the one that deceived them into walking away from God. Then Genesis 12, Abraham has promised that it will be his descendants that will bless every nation. God says, your descendants will be numbered like the stars in the sky. Genesis 49 narrows us down even further. We hear that it's Judah, the tribe of Judah, from which this kind of serpent-crushing king 
will come. Now we go one step further. Not only the tribe of Judah, but from David's line himself will come this king. The Messiah will be a man from David's line. You can imagine then uh, being a Jewish person in the first century and uh, you're kind of in the synagogue and somebody starts to read aloud uh, the first verse of Matthew's gospel. It says this, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You'd be looking at your neighbor. Is this the one? Is this the son of of David. We understand something more of the astonishment when we read in the Gospels about Jesus healing a blind man. In verse 23 of Matthew 12, it says that all the people were amazed, saying, can this, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? The Gospels love the phrase, son of David. And it's all about this passage, 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the son of David, the promised ruler from David's line. And yet we don't have the full picture yet because he is also to be the son of God. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, God promises, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now in the ancient world, children were the absolute guarantee of your security and your legacy. They would look after you when you got old. And more to the point here, they would carry on the family business. Being a son in ancient thought isn't just about coming from someone physically. It's about coming from them in character too, right? Today we say that people are cut from the same cloth as someone else. This is the same kind of idea. So When we read here that David's offspring will be God's son, we're to hear two things. One, he will come from God, but also that he will perfectly image the nature of God to the world. All that as an introduction. Flick with me to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll read straight from the start. These words will come on the screen behind me as well. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is physically from the line of David, the promised king, but is that all? Is this another false summit king in David's line? No, Jesus is the eternal son of God, the uncreated creator of everything, the unchanging one who changes everything, the one who is not only from God, but is God. The king is to be the one who represents the goodness and the nature of God to the world, who's kind of cut from the same cloth as God. Who could possibly fulfill that but Jesus, the one who is the perfect imprint of God? The early church wrestled for centuries. People were literally killed (laughs) over the question of how can both of these things be true? How can a Palestinian carpenter be the son of God? 
And they came actually to view this passage in 2 Samuel as a prophecy of the virgin birth. If the coming king is to be a man and is to be the son of God, there's no alternative. Jesus has a woman as his mother and God himself as his father. This is so important. Rather than just pretending to be human for a while, no, Jesus is literally entirely God and entirely human. Here's why that matters. Jesus' full humanity means that God has immense empathy towards you. It means that God knows what it's like to be human. It means that when you are sick or tired or depressed or betrayed or lonely, God looks at you and says, I know what that's like. It also means that God has immense compassion towards you. When he saw you in your brokenness and sin, he didn't step away. He entered the free. God's heart is so drawn towards us in love that he would put on flesh, become a man, and eternally be a man just to win us back to him. That's how God looks at you. And Jesus' being fully God means that God is completely approachable. In fact, we see David's response to all of this at the end of the passage is to come and sit in the presence of God. This is the only time in the Bible where someone other than Jesus sits down in God's presence. How can he do this? Verse 27, he explains, because of God's promise, he has found the courage to pray. I love that phrase. He's found the courage to pray. When we realize that God became man, that he knows just what it is to suffer, that his posture towards you is only love, then you will also realize in the words of Dane Ortland that Jesus is the most approachable human being to ever live. Are you keeping yourself at arm's length? Please don't. If God would cross heaven and earth to rescue you, he will not welcome you with anything but joy and love. Number one, Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. The word become flesh for you and for me. Let's keep going as we climb the mountain. The coming king will be both God and man, but what will he do? Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7, God says, He is the one who will build a house for my name. Jesus is the true temple builder. We mentioned Solomon earlier, and Solomon did build a house for God. He built the temple in Jerusalem that the Bible talks about as a glorious site. It's built as a place where God will live, a place for sacrifice and worship. Throughout the Bible, the temple is described as a place where heaven and earth intersect. The focal point of God's presence and blessing on the earth. And the temple was designed to draw every, every people, every nation to the goodness 
of God. And yet by the time of Jesus, the temple has become something else entirely. Abby and I have been house hunting recently and we came across a house on right move that was completely dilapidated. I mean, like, the, the ceilings literally didn't exist. The walls were half caved in, there was rubble everywhere. Like, it wasn't fixer-upper. It was knock it down and build something else. Nobody could live there. Without a brilliant builder, that thing could never, ever be fit for people to live in. In the day of Jesus, he sees the temple as a dilapidated house. Instead of a place of blessing, the temple had become a place of oppression. Instead of a place of prayer, the temple had become a place of self-righteous religion. The temple wasn't fit for purpose. And in fact, God makes it clear in our passage in 2 Samuel that bricks and mortar could literally never be enough to contain him. They'd done the job for a while, but they could never be the end goal. God, too, needed a brilliant builder who could build a house worthy of him. So what does God do? He sends a carpenter. God sends a carpenter who takes wood and nails and rebuilds the temple hanging on a cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, experiencing the full weight of everything that has kept you from God, all your sin and all God's anger towards you, the Bible says that the temple curtain was torn in two. The barrier that showed the people that God was unapproachable. That God wasn't theirs to just run towards. That curtain was torn into the temple that Solomon built was officially closed for business. The sacrificial system of the temple where people would bring bulls and goats and pigeons to be sacrificed so that they could be forgiven of their sins was now obsolete. Because Jesus, the true Lamb of God, had died. So does Jesus build God a house? Is this prophecy really about him? Well, yes. In fact, defying everyone's expectations, he doesn't build a physical house. He builds a house of people. In the words of the Apostle Peter, if you are in Christ, you're a living stone. You're part of the true temple that we call the church. Us. Us here, the people that believe in Jesus, this now is where God dwells. Among us is the intersection of heaven and earth. Among us is the place of blessing for the whole world. Among us is the place that God is approached and worshipped. Where Solomon utterly failed, Jesus succeeds. That means that religiosity has no place in God's kingdom anymore. The story of human history is the story of people clawing their way towards meaning and approval in front of God. But because of Jesus, because he has taken the old temple and replaced it with something new, today you can come as you are. 
Today you can come free from the weight of religious pressure. Some of us are experts at rebuilding structures that stand between us and God. Whether it's man-made rules, a kind of hesitancy just to run into his presence, or whatever else it is, Jesus is in the business of tearing down those things. It also means if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, maybe completely against your expectations walking in, there is nothing you need to live up to to be welcome here. Because of Jesus, you're welcomed into God's presence today just by asking, just by coming. Maybe today is the day that he is saying to you, Jesus is the only way to me. Jesus is the only way to me. Come, come and find rest. Jesus comes as the God-man. He comes as the one who builds a temple for God. But maybe this is just another false summit. Maybe it's another moment where God does something great, but then we're left with another hill to climb. No. Lastly, Jesus is an eternal king in David's line. Imagine that you're David receiving this promise. I wonder what you think the biggest barrier would be to it actually happening. Here's what I think. If, if this is going to happen, if David's line, his, his reign, is going to continue forever and ever and ever, He's going to need to have a son, and his son's going to need to have a son, and their son's going to need to have a son, and son, and son, and son, and we know that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Every single kingdom comes to an end. Maybe if God is speaking to a US president, they would say, yeah, this could happen because we elect the next guy. But for this, to, for this to happen, we have two options. Every single king forever has a son. Or one son sits on the throne forever. Either endless sons or one eternal son. And by the time of Isaiah, we see that the first option is already dead. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 speaks into this place where David's line has been ruined through sin. David's line is utterly torn in two. And here's what Isaiah says. He says, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. From the harsh death of David's line, God promises new life. This is where the blind beggar in the Gospel of Mark gets his confidence from. He hears that Jesus is nearby. and He just raises his voice as loud as he can and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows that David's line will not die. A new king is coming. And that king, when he comes, will live forever. In Psalm 16, David himself writes this. He says, You will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor let your Holy One see corruption. 
Now, when we read that, we think he's talking about himself. But the New Testament says he's not talking about himself at all. Here's the words of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. David was talking about Jesus, the true David, the eternal king in David's line, unlike everyone else in history. Death does not have the final word over Jesus. David lived a long life as king, but then he died and was buried. Solomon took over, but then died and was buried. Jesus died and was buried and rose again into a new type of life. He rose as what the Bible calls the first fruits of a new type of creation. Here's how you can think about that. When you're cooking, and you take a quick taste to see how much salt is in it. If that spoonful is good, if that spoonful is just right, you know that the rest of the batch is just right too. Jesus, as he rises from the dead, says, anyone who believes in me is with me, and if I have life, they have life too. Because the first fruits has life. The rest of the batch has life That means that you can have complete confidence in your future hope. The hope that you have of resurrection is nothing to do with you. It's to do with Jesus. One spoonful in the batch couldn't decide on its own to not be good. If the batch is good, the batch is good. If you are in Jesus, you have life in Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, you will be alive. Because Jesus rose in his physical, glorified body, you will rise in your body too. Because Jesus is made new, a new world is on the way. You don't have to hedge your bets anymore. You don't have to kind of put one egg in the Jesus basket and then keep something else alive. Go all in on Jesus. It is impossible for him to fail you. Sylvia Plath was uh, an American poet and writer, and she, in one of her books, has this image of a fig tree that represented her life. And, and each fig on the tree represented somebody that she wanted to be, a career that she wanted to pursue, a place she wanted to go, all the things that she wanted to do and be, and the only problem was her life was too short. She stood in front of the tree and paralyzed with indecision, every single fig withered and died. She could never be all that she wished she could be. In the end, Sylvia Plath committed suicide, overwhelmed by the shortness and the pain of life. Here's what I wish she knew, that the goodness of God is not a fig on Sylvia Plath's tree, 
It's not like our lives that are over before we know it. It's not like any other thing of this world that won't last. No, God's goodness through Jesus will never end. Are you waking up in the morning with the frantic feeling that life is running away from you day after day? Do you feel paralyzed with pressure that this life is your only shot? Of time passing far too quickly. Do you think back and think of all the things you wanted to do and be and they haven't quite happened? I have good news for you today. There is one thing that never withers. There's one thing that never passes away, and his name is Jesus. Come to him. Come to Jesus. With him, this life is a momentary blip before eternal joy. The figs on the tree of God's kingdom will never wither, and in Jesus you will spend eternity eating from that tree. Come to Jesus. With him, this life an eternal joy without him this life is as good as it will ever be from the mountain top of second samuel 7 we finally see the panoramic view of god's long game in all of this We see the long game of our lives as well false summit and false summit and false summit and then jesus He's the one. He's the mountaintop. He is the purpose of all of this. It's Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why you live. Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of David, the builder of God's temple. He's God's eternal king. In a moment, we're going to stand together and worship him. We saw in our passage that David's only response when he hears these words is to go into the presence of God and burst with praise. How could this be? That's what he says. I'm just a man. How could this be? Come today and believe these words. You are not just a man, not just a woman. You are chosen by God. Come today and worship him. As we worship, uh, we're going to take communion. There's two tables, one over here and one over here. If you know Jesus as your king, uh, we just invite you in your own time during worship to come up and take some bread and take some wine and remember that as he died, the temple curtain burst into two. There is nothing, nothing standing in the way today. If you don't know Jesus, we would just ask that you don't take communion, that that you actually take this moment to reflect and think about uh, what you've heard today. Um, We we just want to say this is not for you, but we're so glad you're here. Um, But yeah, if you you are a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to come and take communion. Uh, As well, um, Ian will be down the front. If you feel that you have a kind of prophetic word from God or a Bible passage that's on your heart or anything like that, anything that you want to share with us as a church, then come and grab him and 
uh, before the end of the second song, and, and he'll discuss with you whether that's uh, appropriate to bring. Lastly, we've got a prayer team who will be up the back. I just want to invite you, if you don't know Jesus, don't, don't, don't let the moment pass. If you've had a twinge, just a twinge, I believe that that's God here calling you to himself. Go and get prayer. Let me pray for us before uh, Naomi leads us in worship. Would you stand with me actually to pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that the end goal of everything we are and do and see, everything that we have read in your word is Jesus. We come to him now. We worship him now. Would you send your Holy Spirit into this room? Would you meet with us, Lord? Would you give us prophetic words as we worship together? And we invite you to come and meet with us and we praise you. Would you receive our worship, Lord? We love you. And we praise you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.